But we can't really have creativity without the basic foundation set by imitation. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, I've been looking forward to this podcast because this is based on one of your conference talks. Oh, so we have to take an hour and shrink it into 18 and a half minutes. I, well, yes. And I know that may be painful for you, but I never get to go to your conferences anymore. And so I just love hearing you speak at conferences. And so I'll just sit and listen and take notes and you can give the conference talk. How's that sound? Well, I don't have the PowerPoint, so maybe I won't remember what I say. (laughs) Well, this talk is called From Copywork to Composition. And so, no, I'm not really just going to sit back. I I imagine that I would be a really obnoxious person sitting in your audience because I would want to ask questions, and I get to do that here. Yes. And what's the subtitle? It's Learning Writing Through Imitation. Yes. And that's important. Yes. Sometimes the subtitle is important. Because it gives context. Right. And that's really what I'm trying to help people understand is the importance, the value, the necessity of imitation in learning any skill and applying that to the teaching of composition. Right. So this whole talk from copywork to composition, this would be something that I would be curious about sitting in the audience is when did you come up with these ideas and... Why is this important to what it is you do? Well, as many of our listeners know, my primary training is in music. So I was a full-time Suzuki violin teacher, and that's really my formal training is in music. And when I saw the Structure and Style program, gosh, 32, 33 years ago? Wow. It's painfully Why you must be old. <laughs> I am. I My initial thought was, well, this is a way to teach writing very similar to the way we would teach music. And the first steps are imitation. Hmm. And so from that point, you know, as I started to explain it to people, and when I started IEW in 94, 95, and did the teaching writing instructions hall seminar, I would always make the comparison that if we had taught music the way we've taught writing for the past few decades, it would be kind of like this. Okay, sit down at the piano. I'll teach you the names and the notes and how to push the keys and the pedals and all that. But there is one little rule here. You can't play anything that anyone else ever played. You have to just make (laughs) it up all on your own. Just be original, be creative. What level of musical competence would we get with that teaching method? And pretty much everyone agrees it wouldn't be that great. So what do we do in music? We say, play this. Play it exactly like me. 
practice this and do the next piece and the next piece. And it's very dictated. It's it's very controlled. And then after, you know, months or years, there's that foundation of basic skills. And then on that, we can talk about the creative elements, mm. improvisation or interpretation or composition. But we can't really have creativity without the basic foundation set by imitation. Right. And yes, that's true in music. It's true in art. It's true in sports or dance or really any skill. Mm -hmm. So that's the core of the idea of this talk is to kind of simultaneously make an apologetic for imitation because it's kind of under attack in the modern world. Yes. And how does this apply to the teaching of writing on paper? I think about our business here. And, you know, bringing on a new employee, probably the first week or so, month or so, maybe even year, that's a lot of what they're doing is just watching what everybody else does and learning from them and in some ways imitating what they're doing. And until they have a real understanding of what it is we do around here, they probably have no business in making solid decisions, right? Well, and certainly people come with levels of experience that sure. may help them be more qualified to do stuff. But yes, right. we have methods, we have SOPs, yes, we standard do. operating procedures, and we also have culture. And that type of thing does need to be kind of absorbed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the whole idea of imitation has been very much frowned on Hmm. in modern progressive education. Okay. So we see, oh, probably starting in the late 60s, early 70s, this kind of almost a prioritizing of creativity. Mm. If it's creative, it's good. Hmm. If it's good, it had better be creative. And how dare you tell a kid exactly what to do because that's not creative. That won't promote creativity. And unfortunately, this... This approach, this philosophy, it's kind of modern, has not served well the students or the schools or the parents or, or anyone in terms of especially this area of writing and how many people have we met that said, man, I wish I had learned this structure and style thing when I was in school I would have done better in college. It would make my life easier. I even meet people who say, this is going to help me right now, you know, as a pastor and writing sermons in my ministry, in my work, in my master's program. So we all kind of instinctively know that imitation is the best way to learn something, but a lot of us didn't get that in our own experience of growing up and being in schools in the second half of the 20th century or the early part of this century. That right. makes me feel really old. <laughs> so in your talk, I know you, you pit two quotes against each other from two philosophers, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Mike Rowe. <laughs> yeah, Emerson was kind of the, you know, the prophet of this mm. new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think he said, envy is ignorance, imitation is suicide. Wow. So, I mean, that's kind of, wow, what do you even do? Right. Just 
go out and live in Walden and express yourself to the universe and、mm. be fulfilled. And how many people have failed in、mm-hmm. that regard? Yeah. Not to say that Emerson didn't have a lot to contribute, but that particular quote. And I think Mike Rose said, "Innovation without imitation is a waste of time." Yeah. And that makes sense. Like, why would you try to do something without learning what people had done before? And getting good at that, you know. We also like the analogy of cooking,、mm-hmm. right? We've we've actually done podcasts. Yes, on, we have on cooking. And if you're learning to cook, what's the first thing you need? A recipe, and sometimes even a video that will help you do that recipe in the best way. Exactly. And so you learn recipe after recipe, and then pretty soon after you've made your whatever you're making, your in my case like a lamb vindaloo. And you followed the recipe. Okay, now maybe you can innovate a little bit.、Mm-hmm. Try a different amount of something, or add in an ingredient, or take out an ingredient, and experiment. But good heavens, without the starting point, what would you do? So that's that's kind of my basic apologetic is to point out that the idea of imitation has been under attack、right. in modern education, and we can help you reclaim. Not just common sense, but beyond that, a method、mm-hmm. of applying imitation、right. in a way that gets you to where you want to go. Right. Well, I want to have you speak to this myth that somehow we're teaching plagiarism. I once went to—I don't know if I've ever told you this, Andrew—but my husband and I we went to an art exhibit on forgeries and. Imitation of paintings, and basically the difference between passing something off as authentic versus just making a copy of it so that you can learn to do it.、Mm-hmm. So I, I think of you know your example in your talk of the Mona Lisa. How many? They're not forgeries. They're they're actual work of、right. artists learning how to paint like. Well, and that's what Da Vinci did to his students. Say,、right. here here's a painting. Right. Work on learning to copy this painting.、Mm-hmm. He wasn't the only one. Years ago, I was in Saint Petersburg at the Hermitage, Hermitage Museum, and there was the Rembrandt room.、Mm. It was a magnificent experience. They had the original Prodigal Son、oh, by Rembrandt,、nice. which、uh-huh. I think is one of the the greatest paintings of all time. But there was also in the Rembrandt room a bunch of paintings by Rembrandt students who he had. Given, you know, masterpieces to work on copying.、Mm-hmm. So all these knockoffs of various、right. Rembrandt paintings were、right. there as well. Nice, but no, nobody was trying to foist that off as their their own original work. It's、right. a step in the process. Right, right. The plagiarism is there's three kinds of plagiarism. There's literal plagiarism where the kid just cuts and pastes from Wikipedia and turns it in and says, "This is my paper,"、mm-hmm. and No effort in reorganizing or representing or crafting that to a different purpose, and that's usually fairly obvious. And teachers will pick it up. And of course, now there's sophisticated software that teachers can use、sure. to determine if there's a high level of word repeat or something, and then it flags it, flags it as possible plagiarism.、Mm-hmm. So you know, I think one of the great things about our system. Is it really makes that much more unlikely because 
after you've been teaching our system a while, the checklist is so complicated <laughs> that even if a kid did cut and paste from Wikipedia, they'd have to go rewrite a bunch of stuff to get in all the dress-ups, openers, topic clinchers, all that stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then, of course, there's academic plagiarism, and that has more to do with I'm claiming the creation or discovery of an idea when actually someone else did it first. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough world because, you know, everything has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So who actually owns you know, an idea. But, you know, in the academic world, it could be research, it could be a line of thinking, it could be an area of research that was specific to someone else, and then you're using or representing that, but you're not giving them credit. And that's why today teachers are, I would say, almost overly concerned mm -hmm. with citing sources. Yep, yep. Just to, to help students realize you have to give credit where credit was due. Yep. And then the challenge for the student is, well, is it general knowledge or is it specific and right. need to be cited? Or is it some idea I actually think that I thought of? Mm -hmm. And that's happened before. Someone sure. has written something that they thought they thought of, and then it turns out that someone in the past thought the almost exact same similar thing, mm -hmm. but you didn't know that. Sure. So that wasn't really plagiarism. Right. And then there's commercial plagiarism, which is I'm going to sell something that someone else created and not give them credit, and that, that can be criminal. Mm -hmm. But in terms of teaching, you know, rewriting things like Aesop fables or fairy tales or Greek myths, well, people have been doing that for couple thousand years. Sure. So practicing retelling information, it, it's not plagiarism at all. It's not even in any of those categories. Right, exactly. So Andrew, this idea of writing something, I know you've talked about this before, and I, and I love how you say it, so I'm not even going to attempt to, but let me just feed you where you say you have to read something, you have to think of the idea. Right. Okay. So... <laughs> I don't do it justice. I came up with this model after realizing that most people's problem with teaching writing to children is they didn't understand how complex it is. Yes. And so thinking about this idea, in order to write something, first there has to be an idea. The idea can pre-exist inside your memory or imagination or outside your memory or imagination. So an example is if if I said, write about the last trip you took with your family, that's you accessing your memory and imagination. Mm -hmm. If I said, write about the room we're in right now, you could look around and that would be immediate. Right. right? Mm -hmm. But the idea has to pre-exist. If there's no idea, there's nothing to write. Right. So that's the first task. The second thing is that idea can pre-exist in words or it can pre-exist more in sensory impressions. So if I said, write about your, well, you don't have one, but your son's dog, uh -huh. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you would have to rely on your visual memory, your auditory memory, your olfactory memory, mm -hmm. your tactile and kinesthetic Hopefully not your gustatory memory, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> You'd have to rely on that for the information. Sure. 
it wouldn't pre-exist in words very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could tell me the name of the breed mm-hmm. and the size of mm-hmm. the dog, but you know, even the size, you've got to take that and speak it into existence. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I said, well, tell me about a story you just read mm-hmm. or tell me about a podcast you just heard, mm-hmm. well, that information pre-existed in words. Got it, yep. So to write something, you have to have an idea, can pre-exist in the imagination or in an external immediate way. It can pre-exist in words or in sensory impressions, but it has to exist. Then however it exists, you, the writer, have to kind of re-speak or speak that idea into existence, and then you have to hear what you said to yourself. And I point this out, a lot of times you will notice that children don't actually hear what they say, hmm. right? They're almost like two separate skills, and it you have to practice actually hearing what you're saying to someone. Hmm. But you have to speak it into existence and hear the words you said. And for younger children, this is actually easier if they do it verbally, if they actually are using their vocal cords yep. and their ears to do this. As they get older, it happens all internally. But you think, you know, you write an email, you write something to someone, you write a little article. What are you doing? You're basically talking to yourself, figuring out what you're going to say, hearing it internally, and then holding that in your memory long enough to be able to go start getting the words on paper or onto a screen or whatever. So with children whose memories are not necessarily as as developed or matured, sometimes just holding an idea in the memory mm-hmm. is hard when you're trying to go get the spelling or, or even how to make the letters information right. in order to write the first word of the sequence mm-hmm. corresponding with the idea. And then you've got to go back to your memory and get the next word and then go get the information to get that. And, and you might get three or four words into it and kind of forget the whole idea. And then what do you have to do? Go back to the beginning, find that same idea, speak it into existence, hear it, hold it in your memory and continue the process. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me kind of explain that, they think, whoa, that is pretty complex. It's a wonder we can write it all. It is. An, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. And for children who have any kind of challenge, hmm. whether, you know, it's an auditory processing or maybe a spectrum issue or attention mm-hmm. issue or dyslexia or dysgraphia, where the spelling information is scrambled, Mm -hmm. or even just a concentration is being able to attend to one thing Mm -hmm. for a longer period of time. Kids have any of that going on, well, it's amplitudes harder. Sure. So how do we break this down? Yep. And what we have discovered is that the easiest thing is almost counterintuitive. It's easier to write about something immediate than something in your memory. Sure. It's easier to represent information that is that pre-exists in words than something that doesn't pre-exist in words. So it actually would be easier to read a child an Aesop fable and ask them to retell it on paper than it would be to say, write about the last sports game you played with your friends, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's kind of counterintuitive because, you know, one of the things in the how to write books is write what you know. Mm-hmm. 
But I would point out the how-to-write books are all written for adults. Oh, it's true. They're not how to teach a child to do it. It's, Mm -hmm. oh, you want to write a story, a novel, a book, write what you know. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But for a child, they don't necessarily know what they know. Right. And that's why we often hear kids say, well, I can't think of anything. Right. But you just told me all the stuff about it. Right. Yeah, I know, but I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've solved the problem. We help everybody. One thing I do want to point out in the title, From Copywork to Composition. Yes. And, you know, very often I meet a parent or a teacher who will say, you know, I have this child, let's say they're 9, 10, 11. That's usually the zone, sometimes older, sometimes younger. And he's really brilliant and he can tell you all sorts of things. But then when he tries to write it down, he just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's that problem that I just explained with getting lost in the process. Sure. But there's also the problem of stamina. Mm. And I don't think that we've been doing a very good job at just training the muscles Mm -hmm. of young children for writing. Mm -hmm. You know, like anything, you you did sports in school, anybody, if you you said, well, I want to go run a a 5K race and Mm -hmm. you haven't done anything like that for a long time or ever, well, you shouldn't just go attempt to do that. You may die. You (laughs) kill yourself. What would you do? You would run a little bit and Mm -hmm. then recover and then do it again and recover and then do it again. It's a little easier. You could add on a little bit more and recover and then do that again until it's easy. And then you could add up and any human being, unless they have a, you know, an actual like injury or mm-hmm. physiological problem. But, you know, anyone could, if they did it gradually, work up to running five kilometers. Sure. But you couldn't just do it tomorrow morning if if you're not ready. And so I think about writing is, you know, these kids, they can't do it because they don't have, in some cases, the actual musculature right. in their body, their hand, their fingers, their arm, their eyeballs, to do that. Right, right. And then we say, well, you should. Mm-hmm. Well, that just doesn't work. Well, and you, in the Structure and Style for Students, year one, level A class, and if any of our listeners have watched that course, you know, their students probably watch it with them. Maybe what they don't know is you told some of those kids and some of those parents, your son needs to be doing some more copy work because he does not have the stamina to keep up with me in doing these keyword outlines. And they did. And it was a remarkable improvement over the course of that year, among yes. any, among other things. So but. many valuable things happen with, with just straight copy work. Mm-hmm. You know, here's some text, whatever you want a fairy tale, a poem, some scripture, whatever whatever you got. First of all, it creates attention to detail mm-hmm. because when you're copying, you're not having to know whether it's a capital or whether there should be a comma or an apostrophe. You're seeing it and you're doing it. Sure. And so it's creating this attention to detail that's going to be so important later on. The second thing is, is it's just building the stamina of putting words on paper and you start with some reasonable number of words that you could accomplish in a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. The third thing it's doing is it's patterning good language, Hmm. right? So if it is correct English that you're copying from, as you're kind of running it through your consciousness, out your fingers and onto a paper, you are seeing and possibly reading the correct 
everything. Mm -hmm. And that's good modeling. That's imitation. Sure. You know, Maria Montessori knew this a long, long time ago. And yet, you know, in our modern primary grades, Mm -hmm. it's pretty rare to find a first grade or second grade teacher who would do anything like this because they've been kind of brainwashed into this whole writing is all about creativity and Mm -hmm. Mm self-expression. And then the kids, they just don't have the musculature. Mm -hmm. They just don't have the stamina. And then they hit grade four, grade five, and they just, they can't do it. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, I'm very often having a conversation saying, well, have you considered just straight copy work? Then one step removed from copying the whole sentence is just copying the three words right. from each sentence and then launching into unit two well, and of unit, our system. Well, I want to just go back to unit one just for a second because that is the next step. It's not copying every word. It's just copying a few words. But way at the beginning, you talked about speaking the words into existence. And that's a big part of unit one is they're taking that keyword outline now and reconstructing those sentences out loud. Exactly. Yeah. So they're hearing what they were thinking and they're going to have a better chance of writing it at that point. So, And then we could probably spend, oh, I don't know, 14, 15 hours talking about all the different units. Well, and that all would the different... be our TWSS course. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, that does get us all the way up to multiple paragraph compositions. Sure. So copy sure. work to composition. It's a natural process. You know, and we're kind of having to skip a lot of the middle of this mm-hmm. talk. But one of the things that I discovered is that in addition to using models and checklists, which is a form of imitation, sure. here's the number of paragraphs, here's what each paragraph does, here's you know, the stylistic techniques, that's all there. You can even go past that into the idea of, well, I would imitate an author. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stumbled into this by accident one year. I had done a a session a long, long time ago. We even made a video a long time ago. We've since replaced it with better stuff, Mm -hmm. but it was called Power Tips for Planning and Writing a College-Level Paper. Mm -hmm. And the idea here was when you go to college, don't try to write well. Just try to figure out what the professor thinks is good and (laughs) imitate that. Oh, nice. Okay. And we know there have been actual studies done Mm -hmm. where the same paper was given to different professors and it received very different grades. Exactly. Thus proving that grading is quite subjective in the mind of college professors. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get the better grade, don't try to do what you think is good writing. Try to figure out what the professor thinks would be good and imitate his or her style. Nice. Yep. And that's kind of a difficult thing to do because you got to find something that that professor wrote and then have tools to analyze it. And that's that that's pretty sophisticated. So it wouldn't be a starting point to teach the skill, especially to younger people. Mm-hmm. So I thought what you would do is take things that are more different than professors writing, such as different authors. Oh, nice. Yep. And so the first time I tried it, I got a, a little piece by Mark Twain. It was just a little piece from, from Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And then I got a little piece by... James Finn Garner, when mm-hmm. he wrote the Politically Correct Fairy Tales series. And okay. That was very different. And I think the third one I chose was a little piece by Hans Christian Andersen, mm. which also is very distinctive in mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. And I took those pieces and I said, okay, what makes Twain sound like Twain? What makes Garner sound like Garner? What makes Hans Christian Andersen sound like Andersen? Yeah. 
And we made it a checklist oh. specific to those things. Okay, got it. I said, now, don't worry about dress-ups and openers or top of clincher. Don't even think about any of that stuff. Just try to write something in imitation mm-hmm. of one of these authors. Yep. And what are you going to write about? Well, here's a couple of Aesop fables. Pick ah, your favorite and, nice. and do that. Yep. And we and do do that in our structure and we style. We do. I've yep. done it ever since because yep. it works so well. We love well. it. The kids love it. The kids loved it. Mm-hmm. And... I thought once you can imitate things that are very different, then you could imitate things that are less different Mm -hmm. and maybe get to the point where you could take three different college professors writing and figure out, you know, what are the factors that make those different. The thing I finish up with in the talk, kind of fun, this girl came up to me. She had Mm. just started college and she said, she didn't really know anything about what we do. Okay. She just knew that I was like the writing guy. Okay, right. And so she said, so, you know, I'm in college now and I want to major in English and get a master's in creative writing. I want to be an author. Mm. I just love writing. Mm. And that's what I really want to do. What advice do you have for me? Sure. And I thought, man, I would never want to do that. But, <laughs> um, okay, what advice would I give myself if I wanted to be her. And I thought, well, I would make a list of my 10 favorite authors, things I've read and I loved. And I would go to the first one on the list and I would try to figure out what does that author do that makes that author sound like that author. Mm. And then I would just try to write stuff in imitation of that author until I thought I was getting pretty good at sounding like that author. Then I would go to the next author on the list and figure out that and then try to imitate that author until I thought I could do it pretty well. And I would go to the next and I would go through 10 great authors until I could imitate all of them. And then I would try to do something unique or original. And she just looked at me, mouth open, wide eyed. And then when I finished talking, she said, that is exactly the opposite of what my teachers in college say. Oh, wow. Which is, Don't ever imitate anyone. Hmm. And I realized right there, that's that's a complete different way of thinking about acquiring a skill. Right. And I'm pretty convinced my advice is better (laughs) than all the advice she's getting in school. Well, and there's precedence for that, Andrew. As you we talked about the great artists, the great musicians, they all learn by imitation. Architects, Mm -hmm. yeah, sculptors. Yep. Athletes. Yep, exactly. So anyway, that's the preview of the whole talk. Right. And we (laughs) will put a link in the show notes for the complete talk, listeners. So if you want to hear the whole talk, you can enjoy it yet again. So thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.